Um, hey, if you're, if you're new with us, we're, we've been in the um, series, the sermon series, Kingdom Basics, and we're going through the basics of the kingdom of God. And um, how we're doing that is we're going through the book of, of Matthew uh, expressly in the Sermon on the Mount. And um, so we are looking at Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and going through that. And it's just going to be an awesome, awesome time. So far, I've heard a lot of good conversations and I've been talking to uh, a lot of people. And what I'm hoping is that this, I, I mean... The temptation is for me to get up here, talk, and say, all right, great, and then you come back, and then next week, and it's all right, great, and then, but that's not what it's all about. I'm here to have a conversation. I'm here to have a dialogue with you. And as we talk together, as we are conversing together, and yeah, I might be most of the talking <laughs> at this time, is afterwards we talk some more. And then maybe through the week, you're, you're bringing this up, you're talking about it, you're dealing with it, you're, you're dialoguing through this. Because um, that's the way they taught back then, by the way. We have the modern day sermon where you sit and listen and just take in and then I speak and then we're done. But that's not how they did it. See, very much so, they would talk and people, what are you talking about? And they would talk about it and they would deal with it. In fact, the first church, I don't know if you guys know this, but like 90-something percent of them didn't know how to read. They didn't even know how to read. So, so they, would, they would get this one letter from like Paul or Peter and then they would read it to each other and then they would discuss it and, 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 and wrestle with it. And you see this actually in the book of Acts with uh, Paul and the Bereans um, where he's challenged and they're saying, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, I'm glad you challenged me. Let's talk about that. And, and they deal with it. They struggle with it together. And that's okay. That's what we're supposed to do is, is work this out together and figure this out in a dialogue. And so that's what I'm hoping we're starting here. And that's why I put questions. And if you have your, your notes at the end, there's, there's different verses and passages to go through and look at and study over time. I do that. And I'm just hoping that you can just kind of join us as a church and do that together. My hope is that we start growing in groups and we have some cell groups and home groups and discipleship groups where we start dealing with this stuff on a bigger level. And that's what we're hoping for next, for next year as it's coming uh, soon is, is I've already been hearing people wanting to get baptized and we want to start offering some discipleship groups and, and really just start seeing this stuff take root as it talks about in the book of Colossians chapter 2 that we let Jesus' roots, we grow deep into the rootings of Jesus where we can just go down into him and our roots forever and ever. I mean, we can go as deep as we want to go and that's what it's all about. Um, sorry, I'm just getting off topic here. Let me, uh, <laughs> let me get back. Um, my wife told me last time, she's my best critic, uh, that I have, I, I have a, way too many analogies. Oh, I owe her five bucks because I just brought her name into this. So I, I owe her a lot of money because um, I, I see a lot of rabbit trails and then I go after them and I have to stop doing that. I need to keep to my notes. <laughs> if I do that, just throw something at me. Please let it be soft. Um, so in the Sermon on the Mount, if, if you're taking notes, I just um, it, it's almost a declaration. In fact, it is. It's a declaration of what the kingdom of God looks like. It's a declaration of, of something, though, that we can't attain. And we talked about that. Uh, it, it's like Jesus is saying, hey, just defy gravity. What do you, we can't. You know, we can't do that. You know, just quickly make your hair grow really long. You know, you, you just can't, you know, quickly uh, you know, make your hair change color on your own. You just can't do it, right? You just can't. Um, and it's, it's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. And, and I guess to put it simply, I put a little formula. And this formula is really worked out by the Apostle Paul in the book of Second Corinthians. But it's, um, it's not my strength plus God's strength equals something. You see that? It's not... My strength plus God's strength equals something. It's all God. It's all Jesus. And this is a declaration of that. We have 
Jesus starting out with these things that people would have been like, what? What are you talking about? And we look at the Beatitudes as, oh, it's, isn't it glorious? Isn't it beautiful? But it's almost like a slap in the face, especially to the religious establishment, especially to like the religious elite who are all about getting to God, getting to God on my own, doing what I need to do to rise up in my own bootstraps and really attain this thing called Christianity or at that time, Judaism, getting close to God. I can do it on my own. And we see that throughout as the Pharisees attack Jesus. And we see that also with the, with the rich young ruler. If you guys remember that parable, or actually, the, the, it's not a parable, it's where a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to get to heaven? You see? And Jesus very much here in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount says, there's nothing you can do. You can't attain this. It's completely opposite, if you're taking notes. It's opposite of what the world says is important. It kind of reminds me of the book of Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you guys want to take notes on this, it's, it's, it's good stuff, and I recommend looking at the book of 1 Samuel in general. But 1 Samuel 16, um, you have Samuel, who's supposed to go to Jesse and, and pick a king for Israel. Saul's replacement, the second king of Israel. And he goes to, to the house of Jesse, and, he, and Jesse has all these sons, and all these sons are like big, really tall, just strong, masculine, you know, ah, ha. And he goes to the eldest first, and he goes, surely God, this has got to be him. I mean, look at him. And God's like, nope. And he goes to the next one. Nope. And he goes to the next one. And he goes on down the line, and finally he's done with all of Jesse's sons. And, and Samuel says, is there any more? Sons, because the, none of these work. And you can almost probably hear Jesse under his breath. What are you talking about? They all look like kings to me. You know, they're all kingly. Hey, but, oh, but there is this one. He's the youngest. He's the runt. He's out there with the sheep, you know, the lowest job of all the family. He's out there doing his thing. Well, bring him in. And, of course, he comes in. We know that's David. And, and we get this really great statement there. Uh, and it goes something like this. He doesn't, that God doesn't look at the outside of a person. He looks on the inside. And that's what I love about the Sermon on the Mount. What we have is God explaining the internal things, not the external things. And very much we, or religion, a lot of times say it's all about what you look like. It's all about what you do, or what you've done, or what you can do, or what you can buy, or what you can't. You know, do you get what I'm saying? And that's not what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And I love it because it's this declaration of things we can't do and honestly would be hopeless to try to do without God inside of us. See, when we accept this, when we look at this, it revolutionizes our life. We get to partner with the Creator. That's what's so amazing about this. Blessed are you. God is on the side of you who are poor in spirit. By the way, that's everyone. <laughs> I love it. And we talked about that last week. Create, he creates his kingdom in you. And as you partner with him, he creates his kingdom around you. Because it's all God. And that's what we see here. And I love it. Um, by the way, this kind of stuff uh, is revolutionary then and it's still revolutionary today. In fact, it's enough to get you crucified or martyred, um, really. And it did for Jesus. <laughs> the, the religious elite didn't like it. And they... Um, they crucified him for it. So 
I, I guarantee you, as you let the Sermon on the Mount transform you, as you let God's Word just really come in and, and do its work, and its work, not your work, its work, you're going to see something big. You're going to see something different. So let's pray real quick, and then we're going to jump into um, the first 12 verses here of the book of Matthew. Lord, thank you for this. We, we want to be open to you. I, I love what Jason was saying. We just want to enter into the praises that have already been going on. That have already been going on. Lord, there's been people before us for thousands of years who have been striving and struggling. There's been people for thousands of years that have been looking at your word and saying, Lord, please, I just want you to use me. I just want you to be a part of what you've called me to do. I want to go where you want me to go. I want to do what you call me to do. Lord, there's people here that are struggling. Maybe Thanksgiving wasn't such a fun time for people. In fact, sometimes Thanksgiving can just be a reminder of how miserable this world is. Lord, we have struggles here. There are marriage struggles. There are addiction struggles. There are pride struggles. There are work struggles. There are struggles. And Lord, we can't do it. That's the beauty of of your word to us. That's the beauty of sending your son is we can't, but you did and you can. And I know as we get ready in this sermon to to really take your communion, we see that simple fact that you did what we couldn't do. And you bring us into what we could never attain. We want that for for our families. We want that for ourselves. And Lord, we want that for the world around us to share your love because we care and we want it to be a part of this community. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so please stand with me here as we're going to read God's Word. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, When people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, you may be seated. Now, um, we are obviously in the second beatitude here. We're looking at blessed are they that mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are they that wail and weep, for they will be happy. That's kind of the understanding here. And you can understand why a lot of people around Jesus called him nuts. Because, I mean, this is so ridiculous of a statement when you really think about it. Right? I I mean, and if we were to take this literally, like something we can get, as we talked about before, something that we can do, right? Then all we'd have to do is mope around all day and we'd really be happy. Right? We'd really be close to God if we just were mopey. I mean, if we were all just a teenage girl, right? You get what I'm saying? 
Sorry. I, 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 I have three girls, and they're teenagers, and they, I swear, sometimes they're happy, sometimes they just they mope around all day. And, and I used to work with teenagers. I love teenagers. And there was this class of teenager, or this, this uh, you, know, the, you know how back in the day you had the greasers, and then you've got the, the jocks, and you've got the geeks, and you've got the, you know what I mean, and all the different classes. Well, there's this one group of kids called emo. I don't know if you've heard of this. And their whole thing is just dark and uh, brooding and moody and, you know, and, and, and they're great kids. But I just remember, I remember when they first came out and they were called emo. I'm like, why emo? I think it has something to do with emotional. I don't know. That maybe it's a short word on emotional. But, but, the, but basically, is God saying here that if you're emo, then you're really close to God? Do you get what I'm saying? Because that's the understanding if we were to take this, the literal, if, it, if it's just an outside thing that we do, then the more emotionally sorrowful and pitiful and lamenting you become, then you're really close to God. No, that can't be it. That can't be it. You see, Jesus is pointing to something. Because again, this isn't something we physically can do on our own. This is not something that we attain by our own merits or by our own lamenting. Or weeping. Jesus is pointing us to recognize the darkness within. If you're taking notes, this is, this is a simple first aspect. I'm only going to go through really two here. And this is, the first one is, Jesus is pointing us to recognize the darkness within. He says, blessed are those who mourn. This is an interesting word, pentheo. Um, it, it's it, penthos. It just means mourning, like to weep and wail and lament. I mean, if, if you've ever been to a, um, a Hispanic funeral, you guys ever been to a Hispanic funeral? Yeah, I mean, man, I, or, or just a Latin-blooded funeral. Let's put it that way, because I've got Greeks and Italians in, in my, and they're just they they don't let go. I mean, they don't like keep it in. You know, like like if you've ever gone to a Swedish funeral, I'm sure everyone's standing there all. <laughs> You know, just real reserved, right? Like, especially British. You see those British guys and they're just... No, I mean, man, they just let go and they, they, they throw themselves over the coffin and they wail and they weep and they mourn. And that's the concept here of what Jesus says. That's the type of weeping. That's the penthos that he's talking about. So to really understand this, I think first of all, because Jesus is really showing us an extreme, I think we need to look at the other extreme. And there's an analogy that I really love, and, and it goes something like this. Have you ever heard of the term whistling past the graveyard? Okay, this is an interesting term, and I want to bring it back to life. Because um, to get this, we need to see the opposite uh, of what Jesus is saying. Um, a good quote here for this is, It reveals something about ourselves when we whistle past the graveyard. The graveyard's over there, but I'm going to pretend it's not there. I'm going to whistle while passing it so as to forget it's there. All the while, we're whistling to distract us from that unmovable reality that is always there. The backdrop to everything. The end. Whistling past the graveyard. Because this goes so deep. It's not just about death. It's not just about something physical. It can be everything. You see, this is the problem with our culture today. And and I just, I want to point this out a little bit because society does this all over it really does we whistle past the graveyard all the time Uh, think about it when somebody dies we don't even say that they died or how that we just say they've passed on but they, they they're not with us anymore and we cover it up we hide the fact of the brutal reality of the end by using a lot of simple nice terms 
you know, when someone dies, we have to close their eyes and put a sheet over them. We can't just leave them out there for people to look at. We have to cover them up. We have to put them in a bag. We have to do all these things. Now, I know there's germ aspects and different things that have to do with that. But the truth is nobody wants to look at a dead body. I don't. I mean, think about going to the hospital. Now, the hospital is very clean for a reason. You didn't want to go to a hospital 100 years ago. That's for sure, okay? And there's a reason why they're, they're very nice. But I'll tell you right now, a lot of how hospitals are built is so that you don't have to see the stuff in there. Because psychologically, that really messes with you. And so for some extent, we whistle past the graveyard, even with death. Uh, one of the most interesting things by this is also the open casket, where makeup artists spend hours and hours and hours on a dead body. Do you know what I mean? To make it look... And, and you'll hear people, oh, they look so peaceful. They look so nice. And I'm not trying to knock that, but the truth is, it's, it's, they're not even there. Right? That's just a body. And, and, and we try to dress it up and make it look so nice. Because we don't want to see and we want to whistle past it. How about suffering? I used to... When I was a kid, I'd stay up real late and watch TV and different things. And I noticed late at night, there was always the commercials that were like the starving kids were always on late at night. You know, and please give to the kids and they're suffering and they're starving. Or they're on in the middle of the day when no one's watching. Why aren't they on in prime time? Sometimes they get in, but most of the time they're not. Well, because if you look at the reasoning behind that is those are depressing commercials and people don't want to see that. They don't want to see that some kid's starving. We want to whistle past the graveyard. The truth is, we all whistle past the graveyard. We do this so we can cope with fear and stress and conflict. And church is not immune to this as well. Let me give you another way we whistle past the graveyard. Have you ever been one of those families? Now, no, I know you're not. This is just, this is just an analogy. This is just a, a simple reenactment. But you know, the, the one in the morning where dad's trying to get everybody ready and then you've got the one kid who's standing over there brushing his hair for like 30 minutes and yelling, hey, get in the car, you know, and you're yelling at him. And then, the, and then mom's over here going, we got stuff to do and things are happening. And then all of a sudden they start fighting and then, you know, my, you know maybe brother and sister, they, hey, that's my brush and they kick each other and then everyone's screaming and dad comes in, oh, dare you. And, you know, it just gets chaotic, right? And no breakfast for you. You know, I'm going to eat your donut. You know, and then we just see all this stuff. And then they walk through the door and it's, praise the Lord. <laughs> he is risen. You know, I mean, it's just real. It's like that. Nothing. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Blessed morning. No, you didn't. You had a horrible morning. You were on the brink of divorce. You know, you were about to strangle your child. You love him, but you wanted to pull, hold, him, hold him underwater, right? Oh, I mean, honestly, that's what happens. And we whistle right past that. I can't tell you how many times I've been up in, in front with kids and just preaching and, and, and they're struggling. And they'll never deal with it. They just whistle right past it. And then I found out two years later, they're, they're pregnant or in jail. And I, why did they whistle past that graveyard? They needed to deal with that. You see, Jesus is very intent on this. And I think we can miss this. Because we have a tendency to put up the mask and say everything's fine. And whistle right past the death all around us. Jesus is pointing us out to, or to us that if we follow him, we must recognize the darkness within. 
Christians are never to close their eyes to who they really are. They should be the first to recognize. If you think about it, Christians are the most holistic people. The people that live without hypocrisy. They should be the ones that are the most truthful about what's going on. The ones to first show and share and say, this is my life. This is what I am. But God still accepts me. That's the beauty of this declaration. He's basically saying, you, you, blessed are those who mourn. And it's not because it's something they do. It's just because they recognize, I'm so messed up. Look at the graveyard. It's all around me. A real saint always recognizes the depths of their sin. They, they just they recognize it. That's what's so beautiful about the woman who, who's weeping at Jesus' feet as he's in the midst of all that religion with, with the Pharisees. And the woman comes and she's weeping and crying and, and Jesus says this crazy statement, he who sinned much loves much. But he who sinned little loves little. You see, the concept is simple. I mean, she's mourning because she knows she's screwed up. She recognizes it. And this doesn't lead us to depression, by the way, but drives us to grace. They that mourn realize that God came to me anyway. You get it? That's the declaration here. He loves me. Wait, even with all my stench and tombs and darkness and death? Yep, he loves you anyway. Wants a relationship with me. Wants to partner with me. Wait, he wants to partner with me? Does he know how screwed up I am? Yep. Yep. But I'm stupid. God wants to serve with you stupid. Right? I'm poor, but he wants to serve with you poor. But I'm old. Oh, he used old people. He wants to partner with you. He loves you. It doesn't matter. Real Christianity recognizes and walks through the valley of the shadow of death, but knows that God is with me. And he will never leave me. Where are you whistling past the graveyard? One of the greatest stories in the Bible is the prodigal son. And I love the prodigal son because he recognizes, he's in the midst of his junk, and he recognizes, ah, my father might take me back. My father, I think, still loves me. And he wanders home, thinking about all the things he can do for God. And the father just picks up his robes and runs at him and gives him everything before he even opens his mouth. Because that's God's way with us. See, the prodigal didn't do anything but just recognize, I'm screwed up. That's it. Where are you whistling past the graveyard? Well, you don't understand, I'm just an angry guy. It's who I am. Well, you're whistling. Well, it's not that bad of a problem or an addiction. I mean, it's just a little whistling. I don't want to deal with that issue or situation in my past. Can we just not talk about it? Whistling. You see what I'm saying? Where in your life are you not recognizing? Jesus says that those who recognize will be comforted. I love that. So this is the next part, because we're going to get into that comforted part. But Jesus leads us, if you're taking notes, to respond to the darkness without. See, we recognize, now we respond. See, when we see this death around us, and I'm just going to give you, I mean, think about the, the, when you go to the elderly home, right? Where, 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 where they, we just basically house the elderly. And we go in there, and, and basically it's just all these older people just sitting there all by themselves. Lonely, physically, emotionally, mentally, just wasting away. No one is there to talk to them, to respond to the darkness. 
Think of all those people at the hospital who are dying alone. No one is there responding to them. Think of the war veteran on the street who gave his life for the country and now has extreme PTSD. A lot of the homeless people I used to work with, extreme PTSD. I mean, war veterans, people who who have medals pinned on them and now addicted and alone. Who's responding to them? I mean, think of the little kids who are forced into slavery and trafficking. Who's responding? Do you see, this isn't just something where we recognize in ourselves. It's something that as we recognize it, we respond. This is the beauty of what God showed us and what Jesus did with us. Christians must not only respond to what is within, but also what is without. Our Savior was all about this. If you look at, I love Luke chapter 4, because this is where Jesus gives his mandate. He literally is coming to the beginning of his mission of why he's here. And he stands up in the synagogue in his hometown where everybody knows him. He did this on purpose. In Luke chapter 4. And he sits there in the synagogue, he stands up, he opens the scroll of Isaiah, and he opens it up, and he goes right to where he's looking, and he says, and he reads this, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, the recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free. Do you get it? I'm here to respond to the graveyard. I'm here to respond to the sin, to the death, to, to not just recognize it and say, you sinners, but to respond to it. What a beautiful thing. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The most beautiful thing you can get as a Jewish person was to have the Lord's face to shine upon you. Face-to-face interaction with God. And Jesus says, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. I know you can recognize it, but will you respond to it? Because that's the heart of the Father. I don't know if you guys know this, but Christmas is coming, right? Have you, have you turned on the TV yet? <laughs> I swear, I can understand the cynicism of, of, of just Christmas and all the holidays. I, it's crazy. They shove it down your throat. Why? So you can buy, 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 right? I think this year, Americans spent over $600 billion on Black Friday, the two days. That's almost a trillion dollars we spent on stuff. Boy, if that doesn't wake you up to recognizing we need something. I mean, everyone out there is buying. Why? Because I need something. Because I don't have enough. Man. It's crazy, but Christmas is coming and we celebrate this baby in a manger, right? And I don't know if you guys have ever seen the live nativities things. Really cool. I like to see them, but they're so not portrayed factually. You know what I'm saying? I I think it's hilarious when you've got a blonde, blue-eyed Jesus. That that always cracks me up, you know? It's like, wow, it's the sweetest Jesus, right? You know, this is, it is. It's the, it, that's my people. It's the sweetest Jesus. But, you know, I mean, it, what cracks me up is it's so not factual because we, we, we in the, you know, uh, make it all aesthetic and nice and beautiful and clean and crisp. But the truth is, she was a teenage girl who was unwed when she got pregnant by the Lord, right? And nobody believed her. I mean, you, you guys really, I mean, come on. Who's going to believe? Yeah, uh-huh, God got you pregnant. Who's going to believe her? So she was probably an outcast. They, they're, they're, they're traveling from one town to another, and she's, you know, we like to 
we like to put them on a donkey, but that's probably not always the case. So, you know, but because that's like the Mercedes to the, to the, and they, they wouldn't have afforded a donkey. So here she is. I mean, she's walking all this way. I mean, maybe they, they were traveling with people and she got to ride a little bit, but the truth is they're getting here. There's no room in the inn. And these aren't nice inns. These are like people's houses that just have extra rooms in it. And they said, well, no, there's the manger. And we like to make the manger all nice and pretty. But the truth is the manger was a cave in the ground with no windows full of dung full of bugs. I don't know if you guys know this, but there's not a lot of hay in Israel. Okay? <laughs> yeah, you, we, we need to understand this in context. It was gross. It was stinky. It was bad. No running water. No hot water. Oh, yeah, and, she's got, and she gives birth. Who's there? Joseph. Okay, because the Jewish male knows a lot about delivering babies. No! No! <laughs> I mean, think about this. And the only people that come... To say something to them after it's done are shepherds who are considered criminals to everyone around. Nobody liked shepherds. They weren't even allowed in the town. They smelled and they could take your daughters. That was the concept. I mean, this, it's just amazing to me. Jesus wasn't afraid to respond. God wasn't afraid to respond to come to this poor couple in such a horrible environment. I was born in Huntington Hospital. It was pretty nice. <laughs> Pasadena. And if I was God and I, I had a choice, I'd want to be born to rich people, nicest thing, running water. I mean, I could, you can't pick a worse thing. Oh, and by the way, a couple months later, Herod got wind that, you know, from the wise men who came to, to visit Jesus. Oh, there's another king born. Oh, there is, is there? So he slaughtered every child, male child, from three years and under. There's a Christmas present for you. So much so that it was scriptural prophecy that happened and the wail and the weeping and the mourning, the penthos that went up because of all the babies that were slaughtered. And we make it so nice and safe and easy. Shoot, we got it on Charlie Brown, right? (laughs) But the truth is, this is not simply an easy understanding Jesus recognized the darkness. God recognized the darkness. And he'd entered into it. He responded. He went to the grave for us. That's why we have this. It's such a grisly thing when you truly look at it. His blood, his body. Why? Because he wasn't afraid of the graveyard. He recognized it. And he responded to it. The word here for for comforted is an interesting word. It's parakaleo. Or parakalao. And it's an interesting word because it, it, it basically means to call to one's side. Which is, kind of, I think, interesting, right? I mean, it's like you're going to be comforted. So come here. And I don't know if you guys have ever had this. I had an aunt who was bigger than life. She was the pastor's wife. And she was just larger than life. Just such a, a loving woman. And I just remember sometimes if you have a bad day and she, oh, come here. And she would just put her arms around me. And, you know, just these hugs that would just, you just, oh. You know what I mean? You guys ever had that? I don't know if you, when you were a kid, maybe, and you were crying, and mom, and then she would just wrap her arms around you and just put you to her side. Sometimes that's just what you need after a bad day. I know it, right? You just come home in the office or whatever, and you just want someone to put their arms around you. Come here and put you to their side. That's kind of the concept here. This is an interesting word because it's literally to summon to one side. See, those that mourn are at the side of Jesus. And by the way, where was Jesus? In the gutter. Where's Jesus now? Where's Jesus working? When he came, he didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. 
See, are we more concerned with our comfort than the reality of those in the graveyard? You see what I'm saying? This, this is why Christianity is not something we hear and think about or something that just goes in here. Christianity is to be lived out. And when Jesus is saying this, this is revolutionary. Because he's not only saying, wow, he knows I'm horrible, but he still wants me. Oh, but he wants to use me? <laughs> me? So what does this mean? What does this mean for you and me today, thousands of years later? Those that mourn go where God goes. They're at the side of Jesus. To go where he goes. See, it's easy, easy to criticize the world, isn't it? It's easy to kind of sit back and go, ah, that, this and that and that. Jesus never criticized Oh, he argued. <laughs> he yelled at. <laughs> but he was right there in their face and he did that because that's what they needed to hear. And by the way, he only yelled at the religious leaders because they weren't listening. It's, it's entirely different though going to the gutter to minister. Uh, not too long ago, Kim and I were... were um, we were... Uh, it's hard to say. Pro- propositioned? I don't know. There was this... What happened was... We knew somebody, in the, and this person had a, had a sister who was pregnant. And they basically said they didn't know what they were going to do. They were probably going to have the baby and then let it go. And Kim and I were like, wow, that's crazy, you know, and wow, you can't believe it. And then we were talking about it, and over time, God just kept saying, why aren't you going to do something about it? You talk about life, you talk about helping, you talk about responding. Why don't you do something? Well, Kim and I were like, that's crazy because we have four kids and that's nuts. <laughs> Who are we to, to do that? I mean, we're not foster parents or adoptive parents. I mean, we, that's, I, we'd always liked the idea and we always told others to do it. But finally, we came to this point where God was saying, yeah, but I'm here by the side of this person. Are you going to come with me? And you know what was crazy is we, we decided to do it. And things were going and we, you know, we said, Lord, not our will, but your will be done. Not where we want to be, but where you are. That's where we want to go. Well, it, it ended up not happening. But you know, I'll tell you right now, if, 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 if the offer were to come to us, and I know Kim's like, oh no, Lord, please don't let us have to have another child. <laughs> but we're open. Because if that's where you are and that's where you want me to go, then we'll go. And it was interesting because there was a couple that we, that we know. In fact, he's a mentor of mine. And I love this man to death. I mean, he's awesome. He's one of those guys I just, I've been looking up to for a long time. And his wife had the opportunity recently. There was a, a gal that had a baby and she's had four or five kids that just given away. She's a drug addict. And this little child had nobody. And the wife said, we need to take this baby. And the husband said, we can't do that. There's too much stuff going on. There's too much craziness. And I, I got together with him recently and I said, just pray fast. You know, maybe the Lord, you never know. What is, what is, what, where's the Lord? What does he want to do? And you know, he came back and he said, the Lord's over here. And who am I to not go where God's calling me to go? And so they're now in the process of adopting this little baby. And the thing that he said, I, I had to write it down because I thought it was interesting. He said this, You know, I call myself pro-life and I tell others that adoption is a way better alternative to abortion. And I found that I was saying that a lot, but I never was open to living that. Am I prepared to live it? And that's what he kept hearing in his his thing. Because he didn't want to be a hypocrite. He recognized the darkness and God was telling him to respond. 
Will you be responsible when God says to respond? That's that last little thing. And that's my challenge to you right now. Now, I'm not asking everyone here to adopt. <laughs> okay? So some of you, some of you older people are like, good, I just got him out of the house. You know, it's like, hey, not everybody. Did you know, though, this is an interesting statistic. If only 8% of all people that call themselves Christians were to adopt, there would be no more orphans in the world. Just 8% of all Christians or people that call themselves Christians. That's massive. That's massive. Now, I'm not calling you to adopt, but are you willing to respond? You see? Because the Apostle Paul says our life is not our own. It was bought by a glorious and precious and beautiful sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you recognize who you truly are, good and bad? And are you willing to respond out of that and partner with God? Because He's not afraid of dealing with you. He's not afraid of using you in all your junk. But are you? I have a friend, another friend. I, I love having friends. But this, this guy cracks me up. He's such a good guy. He's a master technician. Whenever I say he's a mechanic, oh, not a mechanic, I'm a technician. Because <laughs> mechanics just fix problems. I assess things. But he's one of those guys you pay $180 an hour to. I'm not even kidding. He's worked on hot rods through the NHRA. I mean, he's the guy. He's the guy that you take to that other five mechanics can't figure it out. He figures it out. Every time I see him, Oh yeah, he's got another story about stopping on the side of the road and helping some poor guy or gal whose car was broken down. I'm like, dude, weren't you in a hurry? Yeah, but God told me to respond and I did it. Do you get it? It can be as simple as responding to some guy on the side of the road whose car is dead. And it could be adopting a child. I don't know. I'm not in your life. God is. God is on the side of those who mourn. And He will comfort them. Do you get it? Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. What will you do? God wants to be by your side at work, in your home, at school. Will you recognize it? Will you respond as God is showing it? You see, maybe, there, maybe you're at, at work. I, I don't know. I, I, again, I'm just theorizing here. But maybe you're like me. Maybe there's that person at work that you can't stand. And it really isn't because you can't stand them. It's because they go out of their way to make your life miserable. Miserable! What are you going to do about it? See, it's easy to sit back and say, Oh, that jerk, this, not and criticize. But it's a whole other thing to love your enemy and to respond because God cares about that person as much as He cares about you. You see, God is calling you to respond. God is calling you to go. God is calling you to His table, which He says, honestly, this is your response to me dying on the cross. Accepting it. I mean, we're all going to celebrate Christmas and I can't wait to... Next week we're going to have Advent and we're, and we're going to light some candles and read a part of the Christmas story and we're going to have a Christmas Eve service. But if it's just this aesthetic thing where we go and we look at and how pretty and how precious and how... Oh, that's nice and it gives me a warm feeling inside, then we've missed it. Because it ends at a bloody, splinter-filled cross.
with Jesus saying, It is finished. I've responded. So please, when you get together, in remembrance of me, take my body, which was broken for you, because by his wounds we are healed. Please drink my blood, for by it you are cleansed. And your sins will be made clean. And as it says in the book of Isaiah, your garments, which are totally filthy and dirty, because that's who you are as you recognize it, as blessed are you who recognize it, will be made as white as snow. That's God-sized industrial grace bleach. And He gives it freely at the cross. But don't let it in there. When you take this communion, know that you are now responsible. That God's calling you to partner with Him and respond to the world around you. Are you going to be comforted because you're by the side of your Savior at school? By the side of your Savior at work? By the side of your Savior at home? That's where I want to be. Is it safe? Oh, heck no. <laughs> it's not safe. But oh, is it good. And isn't it glorious? Lord, I just thank you for your sacrifice. I thank you that you allow us to come to your table. And you give freely the grace that we need. We love you and we thank you. Amen.